thanks everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my name is Adam White. I'm the co-director of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm glad you could join us for today's event. Obviously, uh, one of the, the central pieces of today's event is the annual Seaboyd and Gray Lecture on the Administrative State. This is the second year we've done this lecture. It was inaugurated last year by Justice Gorsuch, and we are grateful to have former Labor Secretary Gene Scalia give today's address. But like last year, this year's event serves a couple of purposes. Of course, there's the Gray Lecture, but it's also then a good opportunity to come together and discuss some of the biggest issues in modern administrative law and the constitutional questions around the administrative state. So we're very, very lucky to be joined uh, by two groups of panelists. You'll hear in a little while from former OMB Director Mick Mulvaney and Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell on what might be the biggest and most interesting new set of legal issues in administrative law today, uh, the disputes over Congress's power of the purse, both in the context of the student loan policy and now also in the, uh, the CFPB litigation. But again, we'll get to that in just a little bit. We're going to begin today with maybe the biggest question of them all. What is the rule of law in the modern administrative state? That was the subject of one of two law review symposia that the Gray Center uh, hosted this year in conferences at Harvard and New York. We partnered with the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty to, uh, to, to have a symposium on that broad question. What is the rule of law in modern administration? Everybody in administrative law supports the rule of law. We all say it's important, which means we all must mean something different by it. So we thought we would uh, approach the question directly in a group of essays. It'll be published soon in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. The lead essay uh, by one of our guests today, Ron Cass, uh, and with other essays by uh, Michael McConnell, who's in attendance today, Philip Hamburger, Lisa Heinzerling, uh, and Noam Rosenblum. We did an event, as I said, up at NYU with, with keynote remarks by Naomi Rao, and we're very glad to be able to bring that conversation here to Washington. As it happens, Ron not only wrote the lead essay in the symposium, he was the one who came up with the idea in the first place. If nothing else, a good opportunity to advertise his book, The Rule of Law in America. A wonderful book, uh, probably due for maybe an update, Ron, I don't know, but, but, um, but certainly uh, a timeless topic and a hard question in modern administration. So we'll turn to Ron in just a moment to give an overview of his paper, and then the rest of us will jump in. We're really lucky to be joined by our other two speakers uh, today. Sally Katzen is one of the best friends of the Gray Center. She's a familiar face in our conference, and we're always delighted that she can join us. She's a distinguished uh, practitioner and residence at NYU's law school. Before that, she served at the highest levels of government uh, as head of OIRA under President Clinton, and also as uh, Deputy uh, at NEC, Deputy Director of the National uh, Economic Council and Deputy Domestic Director. Policy Director. Did I get that right? I muddled it in there somewhere. It's, it's all right. I was, that's, I, as close as it's I... a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. Um, but Sally, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And also our friend Noah Phillips. Noah served until recently as a commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission, where he spoke often on questions of the rule of law, delegation, deference, and the difficulty of regulating uh, in an era of fast-moving, innovative technologies. Since leaving the FTC, he's joined Cravath, where he co-chairs the, uh, the antitrust practice group. Before all of that, he was chief counsel for Senator Cornyn uh, for his work on the Senate Judiciary Committee. 
but of course we'll begin again uh, with Ron Cass, uh, Dean Emeritus of the Boston University Law School, former Vice Chairman of the International Trade Commission, one of the leading scholars uh, of our time on administrative law, writing one of the leading casebooks and a host of law review articles, and happily uh, a number of Gray Center working papers. So thanks to all of our panelists for joining us. And Ron, we'll start with a question. What is the rule of law in administration today? And why are we talking about it? That's right. Uh, let me start by saying thank you for having me here. And thank you for that introduction. It's one of the better introductions I've had. Um, uh, at one point, I was introduced by a friend of mine who, who got up and said, uh, Ron is a, a, a gentleman, a scholar, but he's no intellectual. <laughs> and um, stopped for a moment and then said, uh, and he having been from, from Georgia, said, my daddy, and, and as a southerner you can do this, my daddy always said, an intellectual is someone who's educated beyond his capacities, uh, which <laughs> kind of brought it back a little bit, but, but yours was much better. Um, I, I have to start with uh, a two uh, just brief uh, intros to the uh, conversation I'm about to, to have with you. First is from the uh, very well-known uh, art film, Vegas Vacation, um, in which uh, uh, Chevy Chase uh, plays a, a, a spectacularly inept person who is in Las Vegas, and at one point he is in a, a place where they have a series of games, one of which is, can you guess the number that the uh, person is thinking of? And people would guess the number, and he'd say, no and take their money, and the next person would guess another, nope. Um, and of course, uh, the, the wonderful thing about the game is that no matter what you guess, that wasn't the number, and there was no way of proving what the number was. Um, uh, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, the other is a story that comes out of uh, people who uh, are familiar with the Cajuns uh, living in the uh, Louisiana Delta, um, uh, two of whom, and it's always the same two, it's, it's Boudreaux and Thibodeau, uh, are out fishing. And uh, they are having a wonderful time. Fish are practically jumping into the boat. In fact, the boat gets so full of fish, they have to go back just to empty it before the end of their time fishing. And uh, Boudreaux says to, to Thibodeau, uh, this is such a perfect spot to fish. You have to mark down where it is. Uh, Thibodeau says, fine, I'll do it. And uh, they get back to the dock, and uh, uh, Boudreaux says to Thibodeau, did, did you mark it down where it was? He says, yep, I put an X right on the boat. <laughs> and uh, of course, uh, Boudreaux looks at Thibodeau and says, that's so dumb, we might get a different boat tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> So when we talk about the rule of law, and, and, and believe me, those are, are connected with what we're gonna talk about. We talk about the rule of law, we're talking about something that has uh, two main themes. The first is that the laws, whatever the law is, whatever the rules that guide us are, they have to be the originating, uh, they have to be originated in a place that is legitimate as a source of law. It has to be done in a way that is legitimate as the source of law, and in, in our country, those rules are set by the Constitution. 
The second part of the rule of law is that as it's implemented, as it's put into practice, it has to be done in a way that has not just predictability, but principled predictability. It's not enough to say, well, I know that person hates Republicans or that person hates this person and therefore the law will be interpreted this way. It has to be the case that you can tell how the law will be applied by reading the law. If it's not, if it doesn't have that form of principled predictability, it's not the rule of law. Um, those two are easy to state and it's all the rule of law is. Everything else we think about as constituting justice is outside the parameters of what makes it the rule of law. You can have the rule of law that has a lot of bad law and still is the rule of law. When we look at the American administrative state, uh, clearly the genesis of the administrative state are laws. The genesis is in laws adopted by Congress, enacted in the right way. Now it doesn't mean that enacted in the right way means that they conform to the Constitution. And you would think one of the big pieces of the rule of law is to have what Congress does not just be done in what is formally the right way, but what is by what is formally the right institution to enact laws, but also fits the Constitution. So uh, I, that's actually uh, my publisher calling saying, forget about the second edition. <laughs> um, my the, apologies. That's okay, it, you know, it is just one, one thing, by the way, about books. I found out that it's okay to publish with a nonprofit publishing company. You don't want to publish with an aggressively nonprofit. <laughs> um, so, in, in, in any event, uh, the, the laws that we have that set up the administrative state ought to also fit the Constitution, and they ought to be administered in ways that also uh, fit the Constitution. What we have today is an administrative state that has a lot of enterprises uh, implementing a lot of laws that were adopted the right way by the right people, but the content of the laws isn't quite the same as you might want. We have administrative agencies that have churned out rules that account for now almost 200,000 pages in the Code of Federal Regulations. And if you want to know whether what you're doing fits with what's in the Code of Federal Regulation. You don't want a regulator to play the role of the, the guy in the, the tent who says, no, that's not the, the number I have in mind. You want rules you can read and understand, and you want them to be implemented the right way. Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate under the Constitution to have laws that said, the Federal Communications Commission can write all the laws pertaining to communications period, full stop. The Federal Trade Commission can write all the laws regulating business. I, I know that uh, Noah will talk later about uh, one member of that commission who might have a different view on this. 
than I do, but that would not be something that conformed to the rule of law, nor would it be conforming to the rule of law to have an Environmental Protection Act that says the EPA can write any rule it wants as long as it claims that it has a connection to the environment. We don't quite have that, but we have a lot of things that edge toward it. And we also have a lot of things that kind of pull us back from it. We have procedures that have to be followed that pull us back some from that. We have other institutions in government, like OIRA, that help pull us back some from just a free-for-all in terms of what laws are adopted by different agencies, what rules are put in place. And we have courts that review uh, what is done by the agencies that also uh, pull us back some. But we've had parts of what each of these institutions have done that look a far distance from what I think would generate the sort of principled predictability that would let each of us, uh, every person and every business uh, in the US, operate with a fair amount of certainty of what the law is that's going to be applied to us. And I want to touch just on um, uh, three uh, cases and three pieces of this. I'm going to talk just very briefly about Chevron, Hour, and the, the recent decision in West Virginia. Um, the Chevron decision, in and of itself, seems perfectly fit with a rule of law. All it says is that if the law says something that is clear, the court that interprets the law, and that's what courts are responsible for doing, says what the law is, period. If the law seems to have an ambiguity that is reasonably read as giving discretion to an agency to say what goes inside the box, whatever the box is around the, the way the law tells the agency what to do, whatever sort of discretion is given to the agency, all the court has to do is to make sure the agency interprets it, applies it reasonably. It's not the agency telling the court what the law is. It's the agency exercising discretion given to it by law. And the rest of the Chevron opinion actually looks at the law, looks at the way the agency is implemented, asks how what the agency has done fits with the law, does it constitute a reasonable implementation of the law. And had that been all Chevron ever stood for, nobody would know the name of the case. That's all the case does, but it's not all that was done in the name of that case. What happened to Chevron over time? Was it expanded? And uh, one of my, my friends, uh, Nino Scalia, was partly responsible for the expansion, but the way he actually applied it himself was much like Chevron itself because he was willing to say this is what the law says and this is what the bounds are around what the agency can do. 
And then to say, did the agency do it or not do it? And people can argue about the application of that. They can argue about exactly where the boundaries are. But Nino Scalia's application of Chevron was much more willing to have the court say what the law meant than a lot of other justices' version of it. The Roberts Court has been not terribly enamored of Chevron. And you will notice that most of their administrative law decisions no longer mention Chevron at all. And the court has become a little bit more interventionist in its willingness to say what the law is. You may like it or not like it in any particular case, but I applaud that because I think it is coming back to what the roots of Chevron were, and a lot closer to what the Administrative Procedure Act says courts should do. Chevron doesn't talk about the APA because the APA didn't actually apply. In Chevron, the Clean Air Act did. The review provisions of the Clean Air Act mimic those in the APA, so it's, it's fine to conflate the two. But it, one uh, Supreme Court justice asked why uh, the uh, Chevron decision didn't even mention the APA. That, that's the, the reason for it. Uh, but a lot was done in the name of Chevron. I think the Roberts Court is pulling back in the right direction on that. Second thing I want to just mention is the Auer decision. Uh, the Auer decision said basically that an agency had the authority to, to say what an ambiguous agency rule meant as long as it did it in a reasonable way. It was giving deference to agencies to interpret agency rules. I think that is entirely lawless. I think there was no basis for our. And uh, uh, Justice Scalia later defended it only on the ground, not that it was right, he thought it was terribly wrong. And he came later to be probably the biggest a critic of the Hour decision. Um, his only defense of it was it was unanimous. So nobody was pushing back against it, and so um, the court really can't be uh, held responsible for what it said in that case. Hour is different from Chevron. Chevron could say that the law could, by being ambiguous, show Congress's desire to give more leeway to an agency to come up with a reasonable implementation plan. An agency can't give itself additional leeway. It can't write a rule saying, I hereby give myself discretion to do X, Y, or Z. Congress can do that. It can, within the limits of the Constitution, say the agency has discretion to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, so our was completely unprincipled and wrong as an application of law. The uh, Supreme Court had the opportunity in Kaiser against Wilkie to admit that. And uh, quite a few of the justices were willing to admit it, not a majority. Uh, a majority was unwilling to admit it, but completely rewrote the law, completely rewrote the our decision. And in fact, at one point says that the hour decision is sometimes regarded as standing for X. How ridiculous. X being what the rule of hour was and what it actually said. Um, and when the Supreme Court said that's ridiculous, they rewrote it 
to make it not ridiculous, but also not our. So our no longer exists except as a zombie form. It wasn't overruled. It was simply completely rewritten to mean something totally different. But it's still on the books. Uh, for me, that's not consistent with the rule of law. But it is at least a second best. It, it's uh, making the X on the boat, um, even though you may not get the same boat. Um, but it is, is not quite the same as really saying what it is that you're doing and marking <coughs> your territory. West Virginia. Um, there is a major questions doctrine which uh, got its start in a law review article written by uh, Justice Breyer, who was then Judge Breyer, but really at heart Professor Breyer, um, who was talking about why there are certain questions uh, as to which it is probably better not to read the text of laws quite so literally as you might with other questions. And when the Supreme Court got the uh, question in the uh, Brown and Williamson case, whether the uh, Food and Drug uh, Act of 1906 and later uh, the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act of 1938 gave the Food and Drug Administration the authority to regulate tobacco, to treat nicotine as a drug, and tobacco products as drug delivery devices. Whether that was an appropriate reading of the law, despite the fact that the uh, Food and Drug uh, Administration had insisted for uh, 40 years that it wasn't, um, the, the Supreme Court was right to say that wasn't a correct reading of the law and even if you could read the terms of the law to come out that way, it wouldn't be right because that is a question of so, so much significance. Whether we're going to be letting the FDA regulate tobacco products, one of the largest industries in the country at the time the law was written, an industry that was being subsidized through specific laws that dealt with the industry, an industry that was repeatedly the subject of congressional <coughs> legislation, to have thought that Congress in the law was writing the ability for the FDA to regulate that in ways that would almost certainly shut it down would be unthinkable. And you would at least, at a minimum, think somebody in Congress would have noted that and talked about it at the time, or that the agency wouldn't have denied its authority for so many decades. But before it got there, the Supreme Court had said, here are reasons why that's not the best reading of the law anyway. That is, however, a valuable doctrine. It's a, a reasonable canon of construction. When the Supreme Court came back in the American trucking case, and Justice Scalia said it's unreasonable to have a big change in the law silently adopted when he said uh, epigrammatically that uh, it's not right to think that Congress hides elephants in mouse holes. That captured what the court had said in Brown and Williamson. That's what the major questions doctrine is, and it's a very reasonable doctrine. This past term, 
not the current term, but the, the prior term. The Supreme Court came back and applied that thought in several different cases and most clearly applied it in the West Virginia case, West Virginia against EPA, and, and it did it, I think, correctly and thoughtfully. It is fair to say that the sort of big open-ended authority to make what are essentially laws is not something to be attributed lightly to congressional legislation if it doesn't say it directly and clearly. And people can quibble about the particular application there, about the rule that was at issue uh, in that case. I happen to think the court got it right as to the narrow point as well as the big point. But what it did was to say, we're not going to read big open-ended delegations that are equivalent to do whatever the heck you want to in regulating American business and American uh, uh, citizenry unless the court says it, unless the Congress says it directly. And then we have to come back and say, is that a lawful delegation? Until Congress says it to Wackery, we don't have to read that into the law. I think that is right. And I think it is a hallmark now of the Roberts Court that they are looking at the law that way, whether they get back to the point where they will adopt a strong non-delegation rule or not, I think may have something to do with not just what cases come up to it and how clear the law is about it, but where they go with the major doctrine, major questions doctrine. In the end, I think that we are not dealing with agencies that are in the, uh, I've made up a number, think of what it is, uh, mode. But I think we ought to be far away as well from something that's just an X on the boat when we see what agencies have to do. Well, thanks, Ron. And, and again, he's summarizing a paper. Uh, it'll be in NYU's Journal of Law and Liberty soon. Uh, it's called Delegation in the Administrative State, First Steps Towards Finding Our Rule of Law Paradox. Uh, if you're on our mailing list, we'll send out all the articles when they're ready. Um, I guess the bottom line would be, Ron, the, the Roberts Court isn't perfect, but it's getting better. Maybe not an A, but a uh, maybe a B plus. Sally, would you give the same grade? Uh a few disclaimers to start. I woke up this morning with um, not feeling too terrific, but because Adam had invited me and I had agreed to do so, and I am not contagious, I've been on antibiotics for two days, I am here. I also went to my typewriter this morning, or what do you call it, computer. We're gonna and pause and rearrange the set and maybe space yes, okay. out the chairs. <laughs> um, but I, I actually wrote down some notes because I'm not sure I'd be able to just uh, flip through all these things uh, readily. Um, but I want to start by saying how much I appreciate the invitation and that I am doing it because Adam um, is, um, genuinely welcomes different views. And my view is very different. <laughs> not only from Ron, I haven't heard from you yet. You haven't heard from me. I haven't heard from you, so I make no judgments. But most of the people in the room, uh, <laughs> I am not a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian, but I really believe that where the court is today is very unfortunate, and it's heading down a path that is um, most, most um, unfortunate. Um, in preparing <clears throat> for this, 
I did look at Ron's paper, and I want to go through what's in the paper a little bit more so than his comments today. But starting with Ron is always very difficult because I know of no one who is more pleasant, more thoughtful, and makes more puns than any other human being uh, in the world, um, always with a smile on his face. Now, I will disagree with him, not violently, but strongly, but I will try to do so with a smile on my face to emulate his, his goodwill. Uh, in his paper, he, he starts by, uh, as he did today actually, equating the rule of law with the Constitution. And I'm comfortable with that. I, I, I think that's right. Then he goes on to read the Constitution in a very restrictive way, to my mind. Now I'm beginning to have some troubles. Why restrictive? Why not recognize the goals of the Founding Fathers, endorse or embrace them, and accept and abide by the bold strokes, but not act as though every single word has been chiseled in marble like the Ten Commandments. It strikes me that Chief Justice Marshall kind of got it right in McCullough versus Maryland where he said, and I'm going to have to revert to my notes here, that because the Constitution was meant to endure for ages to come, the founders could not draft a code of immutable rules for implementing the federal government's authority. The drafters could mark only the Constitution's great outlines, leaving it to Congress to avail itself of experience, to exercise its reasons, and to accommodate its legislation to such circumstances as might arise in the future. It's not carved in marble, she says emphatically. Okay, then. The next step he takes is not only to read the Constitution in a restrictive way, but at the same time he reads a lot into the Constitution that's not even there. And we're going to talk about the non-delegation doctrine which he, he ended with. In the Constitution, everyone is climbing on board the non-delegation doctrine. The Congress cannot delegate to the agencies the legislative power, with or without an intelligible principle. Interestingly, and, and I mean he'll cite, and he does cite, I think Aquinas, Montesquieu, did you cite Locke? I did, I missed, okay Locke is in there too, good. And you invoke the Star Chamber. And those are all uh, very important background. But I thought it's the words that matter not the purpose or uh, the gloss that's put on them. And if I may prick the balloon, there is no statement in the Constitution that prohibits delegation. None. It doesn't say, and thou shalt not delegate. Or even Congress cannot delegate the legislative power. It's pulled out of the words, all legislative power, and contrasted with the executive power. That must mean something. Well, Taft, 
Taft in Myers, and Taft is having a rebirth now, which is very nice to see. Um, Taft is coming back strong. Even if all were to represent exclusivity, Taft says, wait a second, all legislative powers granted herein, it's a limiting factor. It's not all legislative powers, folks, contrasted with the executive power, which is much broader. Now, you can agree, you can disagree, but all I'm saying is that to read all of that into all is a bit much, and, and I, would, um, I would join um, Chief Justice Taft, although I'm really worried about dancing on the heads of all of these pins. Again, the Constitution says, does not say you can't delegate, and, and so I wonder um, what the strength of this non-delegation doctrine truly is. In fact, the early Congresses did delegate, and there's been a huge amount of writings on the subject. Um, there's, uh, I, I, I can't read any more of it. It's just, it's so voluminous. Um, and there's distinctions between are you talking, are you talking about fill in the blanks? Are you talking about the rights uh, of, of property owners? Um, and, and these articles go on and on. But then, and I think some of you who I recognize in the audience have heard me say this before. What if, what if the early Congresses didn't delegate a lot? Um, are we hidebound to follow uh, what they did in 1789 or 1791? I mean, 1789 was a great year. Don't get me wrong. But the country was governed by white male property owners, mostly agrarian, hanging on by their fingertips to the Atlantic Ocean, starting out an awesome experience as a representative democracy. Are we living on the same continent, the same way, the same position? I think not. Now, Ron says in his articles that those who wrote and ratified the American Constitution manifestly did not contemplate creation of a vast administrative state of appointed officials and their assistants crafting rules to govern an even more vast domain of private conflict, conduct. I agree. I absolutely agree. But they also didn't contemplate a nation stretching from the Atlantic seaboard to the Pacific and beyond with Alaska and Hawaii, nor to universal voting rights for African Americans or women or other non-European peoples we have welcomed to our nation and whom we have benefited from having here. Do not get me wrong, I value the Constitution. I truly do. And I think the values are long-lived and truly define what our country is all about. And I subscribe to those values. But every word, and then reading into a word like all, an enormous implication of non-delegation. 
Second thing he discusses in the article is Chevron, which he mm -hmm. mentioned here. And I think, well, I do agree with Ron, who I think agrees with me, that Chevron was correctly decided at the time. And why not look to an agency to see whether source is a single smokestack or a whole facility? And I don't disagree, that's a double negative, sorry about that, that some judges and possibly some agencies might have taken advantage of Chevron to deter too much to the agencies. But that doesn't mean we throw out the doctrine. We've lived with this for 50 years, and when agencies push too far, that's what courts are for. And when lower courts defer too much, that's what appellate courts are for. I have not seen the rampant deference demanded by agencies or the rampant deference awarded by courts. But if there are outliers, we have a structure in place to resolve that. That's the rule of law. Not upsetting the whole apple cart whenever we don't like the selections offered. So going back to the general concept of rule of law, I'm cracking my voice, what comes to mind? It's the rule of law as contrasted with the rule of men. And you talked about predictability, stability, continuity, certainty. If what we are experiencing now in the last couple of years is the rule of law, why am I and so many other people so troubled, so unsettled with the frequency with which the current court seems to be changing abruptly the rules? Now, they're not the administrative state, but reproductive rights for women, gun rights, the wall between, it's not a wall anymore, church and state, and for present purposes, questioning, dare I say, dismantling the administrative state. The current court does not like the administrative state. And it's attacking it in various ways, none of which I think could be charitably called the rule of law. Two examples come to mind. First is the major questions doctrine, uh, which, as Ron said, came to most people's attention in Brown versus Williamson, with which I actually agreed at the time it came out because it was sort of a once in a lifetime, like Bush v. Gore. It, you had this confluence of, of the industry, the FDA changing its mind, all sorts of things going on. But unlike Bush versus Gore, it not only lives, but has sprouted like kudzu or bamboo in your backyard. And now the major questions doctrine is being invoked by all sorts of uh, judges, lower court judges, appellate judges, and as Ron said, variety of Supreme Court justices uh, with increasing frequency. And what is this doctrine? It's something that strikes five justices or two court of appeals judges as a variation, an extension, or metamorphosis 
of what the agency has previously done before and been sustained by courts. And, and now they're being told, well, Congress wasn't specific enough. Congress wasn't explicit enough, I think was the word you used. It has to be absolutely clear. I don't think that's the rule of law. I think that's the rule of five people in black robes. They're making those calls. And how do we think this is going to play out in practice? Congress, which was the most powerful and seemingly effective branch in 1789, cannot even tie its shoes today. I mean, it does not know how to debate, let alone decide, the nation's pressing interests. Congress is deeply divided, reflecting the deep divisions in this country. It's also drowning in a political party struggle, with the most important thing being to win the next election. And I don't have to give you chapter and verse on how that has played out. Madison was right. See, I'm invoking the Federalist Papers. Madison was right to warn against factions. And here, the factions are not only, they're not arguing on policy. They're arguing on personalities. So Congress can name post offices, but it has the hardest time passing a budget every year to keep the government open. And this is the institution that the Supreme Court says is the only institution to make laws? More, the Supreme Court is saying that the Congress has to anticipate technological, scientific, or engineering breakthroughs or calamities and give its blessing in advance to specific things it may know nothing about and cannot possibly foresee. Otherwise, God forbid, anyone should deal with the subject. Okay, that's a lot to ask from an institution that's barely functional. The second uh, example of upheaval and uncertainty in the area of, is in the area of appointments and removal, which Ron um, did not mention today and has discussed in other areas. Pre the President of the United States is the most powerful man on the planet. Somehow he is going to be irreparably compromised if he cannot fire an administrative law judge and an independent regulatory commission. I mean, my God, are you serious? He is accountable for a decision of the, he, he should be able to fire an administrative law judge? This is a result of the duel for cause. The peekaboo case. Duel for cause is unconstitutional. Where'd that come from? It seems to have just emerged. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote this decision with a little footnote saying, well, maybe ALJs are different because they're adjudicative. But then the Lucia case said, well, no, they're officers. Oh, boy. There's a conundrum. The unsettling impulses here, the unsettling effects here, are very unsettling. This is not the rule of law, I don't think. And as I was typing away this morning, I thought, rule of law, 
What is it? Is it in the eyes of the beholder? Is it getting what you want? What you think is right? And then I had this vision of patriotism. Who's a patriot? I would say that some of those who attacked the Capitol on January 6th believed they were patriots. I don't, but they did. That's patriotism, and they saw it as an attempt to save the country. Does rule of law have something more to it than the concept of patriotism? Or are we in a situation where this deeply divided country sees what is occurring from two different vantage points? Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, Sally. Thanks for joining us. Um, We'll, rate, we'll return to some of the doctrinal issues, uh, delegation and deference, but at Grace Center conferences, one of the things we try most of all is to bring people from recent government service into the conversation so that we can think both about principle and also about practice. And we've been lucky to be joined a few times by, by then commissioner, uh, now private citizen Noah Phillips, uh, in some of our conversations around the FTC in recent years. And so I'm, I'm so glad you could come back for this conversation. In your time at the FTC, as I mentioned at the outset, you thought a lot and spoke a lot about delegation and deference. You know, when I, when I would teach administrative law, I would often and ask the students to put themselves in the position of a commissioner or an administrator. You've been delegated this broad power by Congress. How do you actually go about implementing it? Um, I can only imagine uh, sort of what it was like to actually be there in person and try to grapple with it, but very glad that you can join us. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's been discussed so far, or more broadly, uh, as an FTC commissioner, how did you approach the question of, of governing under the rule of law? Well, first of all, Adam, thank you for having me. It is um, more than humbling to be here with Sally Katzen and Ron Cass, and I hardly feel uh, fit for purpose in that regard, um, but, I'll, but I'll do my best. I sometimes feel like I've had multiple legal educations. When I went to law school and I was educated by professors, um, a substantial of whose legal experience leading up to the academy was working for, in particular, appellate judges, on some level, the rule of law meant the rule of judges. It meant the rule of five or three or nine or one person in a row. And we read the precedents that they wrote and we read the dissents that sometimes attended those precedents. Um, and we tried to glean best we could, kind of consistent with the old common law method of what the rule ought to be. And often, you know, whether it was non-delegation or substantive due process, um, sometimes not just looking at the words. That was sort of how I thought about the rule of law, um, or at least how I was taught to think about the rule of law. But the next legal education that I had was on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we spent some time with judges and would-be judges and thinking about courts and their administration. Um, but we also spent some time quietly, while people weren't watching, not just naming post offices, but writing laws. Um, you know, that would be debated, the words of which very much mattered. Occasionally we would do things like, all right, I'll give you that word, but here's what's going in the committee report. <laughs> that happens. And everybody knew that the courts wouldn't look at the committee report in the same way that they would look at the words. 
but it was worth something maybe. Maybe it resolved an ambiguity, which is not the same as vagueness. Another topic for another day, perhaps. <laughs> the words of the statute. That was the law. Then I got to an agency. And while I knew this intellectually, I don't know that I'd ever appreciated it in a real way, in the same way before, an agency in particular invested with a vague statute. Unfair methods of competition. That's it at least for part of what we do. There's also unfair and deceptive acts and practices. But in the 90s, Congress was good enough to define that unfairness for us. And there, I got a lot closer to the rule of, I don't want to say just man, because it's not just men, it's women as well, but the rule of individuals. Because it was up to that group of people to determine, on some level, what those words meant. And whatever the judges said, whatever the Congress wrote, at the end of the day for the individuals in front of the agency, right now, for years after, and at tremendous cost, that was what mattered. Now on some level, of course that's true, right? That's what an executive is supposed to be. But here's the thing. I used to work at the FTC. And actually, when I left the FTC, this is a fun little story, Lena Kahn gave me um, a framed portrait of William Humphrey. And all the commissioners signed my portion and sitting in my office today. Um, because William Humphrey, who died, and then we had Humphrey's executor, was a commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and he was canned by Roosevelt, because he was kind of a free market guy. And the case that allowed for that aspect of the administrative state, the protection from firing, didn't call us executive. It called us quasi-judicial and quasi-legislative. And whatever view you take of the Constitution, it is very hard to find that. <laughs> very hard. I looked. <laughs> there was a fourth branch, but it just it was harder to find. Um, let me come back to the delegation point, because there was a proposal in a law review article that we might use Section 6G of the FTC Act to ban all the non-compete contracts in America. The proposal was in 2018, and I looked at it, and I called that guy, and I called this guy. And, you know, I'm not an administrative lawyer by training, um, but I was familiar with non-delegation and sufficiently familiar with administrative law that it gave me some pause that someone might say, anything the commission can condemn as an unfair method of competition, they can also regulate. They can make a rule about it. That was my instinct. So I did a little digging, and I went back, and I read Schechter Poultry. <laughs> Fun historical fact that I recently learned. So I, I came back to my old law firm, Cravath, Swain and Moore. In the 1930s, Paul Cravath represented a kosher butcher in Brooklyn called Schechter Poultry. Uh -huh to challenge the National Industrial Recovery Act. That bill allowed FDR to promulgate codes of fair competition to, as, at least as the court saw it, regulate pretty much anything. And when the court was looking at that statute, they knew about this 1915 law, the FTC Act, which allowed the commission um, to go through a process and ultimately order the cease, um, you know, that. 
uh, ultimately order that conduct that was an unfair method of competition cease and desist. And the court said, okay, that's fine, but that's a different thing. The power that the FTC had was a negative power. Now, I'm still not sure exactly what the court meant by a negative and a positive. And, you know, if you go back to sort of Isaiah Berlin and the critiques of Isaiah Berlin, negative and positive aren't always as clear as we would like them to be. However, what is clear is that in the 1930s, nobody in their right mind thought that the FTC could regulate any unfair method of competition that they saw. At most, what they could do is bring in action and try to stop the conduct that they viewed as unfair. And it's very hard to jive their justification of the FTC Act relative to the NRA in light of the concept of rulemaking power. Because it means something very different to say, hey, you stop that conduct. We've taken a careful, careful look at what you do. And we've said stop. And then to say, no, 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 we're just going to look at the whole economy and we're going to regulate this kind of conduct. And it raises, I think, an important democratic issue that we haven't really talked about. And that is this. Come back. President Biden, in his executive order from um, 2020, uh, July of 2021, had seven different ideas for what the FTC might do with its rulemaking authority. Devices, non-compete contracts, the right to repair, privacy. It's really hard to figure out what the limits of this, if it exists, concept are. And I think that creates a real democratic problem. If you're upset, that five people in robes can change a precedent or alter the course of presidential lawmaking, you ought to be really concerned that three people without robes <laughs> right, can change the course of the economy in a variety of different areas. I think it's an issue when you're talking about a specifically regulated sector, right, like what the FDA does or what the EPA does, or at least specific areas of regulation, but that problem gets even worse if you have no such limit. And that, with minor exceptions, is where the FTC is today. Yeah. Thanks, Noah. Now, I'm sure all three have a lot they want to respond to now. And I'm, there's a lot of smart folks in the audience, so I want to save time for questions. So let's, let's do this next. I'm going to ask three short questions, one question for each person. And then all of you can take a chance to react to anything that's been said so far, and then we'll, we'll open the floor up if that's okay. Uh, and I'll just go in the same order. I'll start with Ron, uh, about non-delegation. As you know, your friend, uh, the late Justice Scalia, was very wary of the non-delegation doctrine, maybe not in principle, but in practice. He was very wary that the non-delegation doctrine would turn into conservative version of substantive due process in a way. Uh, courts drawing lines that aren't clearly mandated in the Constitution. Uh, he wrote about this you know, early on while he was a law professor and at AEI and it continued in Whitman. How do you think about his concerns now in the new, de the new uh, debates around non-delegation? Uh, do his concerns then hold up now? Uh, have we learned since then? How do, how do you put those together? Uh, it's a terrific question, and, and let me do this in three pieces. Uh, first, uh, as a professor, what Nino wrote was that it was imperative to have a non-delegation doctrine despite all the concerns about making it 
difficult to ground in a really predictable way. And, that, and, th and those are legitimate concerns. How do we keep this from being just anything we don't like mm -hmm. is beyond the pale. And he said, but, but here's what the Constitution meant, and, and we have to be faithful to that. The second, um, when we look at the lawmaking power, that's where things start. That's what the rule of law predicate is. That law is made in the right way by the right institution. If you look at the Constitution, uh, if you look at it not as a series of pages, but all on one page, what's most striking about it, to me, is that half of the page is about how you constitute the lawmaking power. And you spend a lot of time in that saying it's got to be done by a combination of people who are directly elected by relatively small constituencies for a two-year period. People who were elected, actually in the, the original constitution, not elected at all. They're appointed by state legislatures later on, uh, starting with the 17th Amendment. So we, we, we go all the way to 1916 with this before we start direct election of U.S. Senators. Um, they're selected by states as a whole for six-year terms, and they aren't all elected at the same time. They're elected in different tranches. So, and, and then you need the president to sign. So you need all these groups selected differently in different ways for different periods by different constituencies to agree on something. This is designed to make lawmaking hard. And it's not, when it says in the Constitution, all legislative powers granted herein, that's not designed to say anything that's beyond this, you can do any way you want. You can't do it at all. It's a limited set of things you can do, and you must do them the right way. And it is constraining because we worry a lot about having rules that govern our conduct. When I was a uh, law school dean, uh, when I was at, at BU, we used to have an annual basketball game between students and faculty. And the students had a few advantages. There were a lot more of them to choose from. They were younger, they were more fit, they were more athletic, they were better basketball players. A lot of them had played in one way or another. I actually, at different times, had two people who had played, played in the professional basketball, the NBA as uh, law school students of mine. Um, so, I mean, these were, were not inconsiderable uh, advantages over old, tired, cranky, and out of, uh, out of condition faculty members. Uh, we had one uh, thing in our favor as faculty. Uh, we had the referee who was a faculty member who <laughs> was quite bold. If, if the students were too far ahead, any student touching a basketball, that was a foul. Um, actually, going to take a shot was a foul. Um, and and a, a faculty member tackling a student going up to take a shot was not a foul. Um, this was absolute discretion. This is not the rule of law. That's what the rule of law is not. And the reason why I favor a, a non-delegation doctrine is because without it, the Constitution abandons any pretense to be part of the rule of law. It just isn't there. When Sally talks about these rules being written, the Constitution being written 
by a, a bunch of old white guys uh, before women had to vote, before uh, African Americans had to vote. We changed the Constitution. We adopted amendments to change those things. You want to change the Constitution so that uh, somebody, three people at the FTC can write any rules they want, finding anybody in business? Change the Constitution. There's a way to do it. So I, 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 I firmly feel that uh, the non-delegation doctrine matters. We need one. Um, it won't be that easy to write it precisely. And even with that, I think Professor Scalia was right. Justice Scalia had lived with judges for a long time. He saw them. He worried about them. The more he saw, the more he worried. I understand that. But he also found ways of sneaking bits and pieces of non-delegation doctrine to other things. Read what he said in Mistretta. Read his corpus of decisions. He really was somebody who was limiting the delegation. And his version of Chevron, for that reason, had bits and pieces of non-delegation in it. Yeah, well, about his version of Chevron, that's actually my, my question for Sally. Um, Sally, uh, when Scalia wrote about Chevron in his famous Duke Law Journal article, one of his main arguments was, this allows elections to have consequences. Agency makes a policy, the public doesn't like it, they can vote in a new president, the agency will change policies. That's a feature, not a bug. Uh, but he's, he makes a little caveat. He says that's a, that capacity for policy change is a good thing. Of course, you can have too much of a good thing, and if agencies start flip-flopping too much, there might be questions about due process. He sort of leaves that hanging and then he, he moves on. Um, now, 30 years later, we, we live in an era of government by agency flip-flop where policies change wildly from one administration to the next. Each, each presidential election has a, a sort of a feel of regime change where the new people come in with a whole stack of executive orders uh, and new policies and everything changes after an election. And so that's why I worry about Chevron deference now. I worry that it's allowed us to have too much of a good thing, too much regulatory uncertainty, real instability in law from one administration to the next. I sometimes say it's, it's like Hamilton's nightmare. He wanted steady administration. We have the opposite of it now. Is, is that as big a problem as, as I think it is in administration? And if so, shouldn't Chevron be erased or recalibrated to make administration much steadier? No. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm very glad you asked me about something that uh, uh, Scalia might have said. Um, I testified for Nino Scalia to be a Supreme Court Justice. Mm. At his request, he and I were friends as well, and we socialized as well as professionally. And so I uh, have spent many, had spent many hours uh, debating various things. Administrative law, when he was the chair of the ad law section, which was I think three years before I was the chair of the ad law section, was not as divisive as it is today. He and I could agree on virtually everything in the administrative law context. It's become, I think, politicized. It's become captured by ideology, if that's the right term for it. And that's unfortunate. But having said that, um, 
I do want to respond to one thing that Ron said before I get to the Chevron. Piece. I'll give you a chance. Why don't you stick with Chevron and then you okay. get a chance to pick up Okay, on I'll do it. Th I'll, I'll do it that way first. Is it too much of, of a good thing to have flip-flop? No, but that is the consequence of elections have consequences. We have a very divided country and we elect Republicans and then we elect Democrats and then we elect, uh, we elect Republicans and the agencies are responsible to the chief executive officer and that is the president. And so if they are going to uh, flip-flop on their decisions, that's what you would expect mm -hmm. from elections that uh, will go both ways. Um, it's a problem, but not a problem uh, of Chevron particularly, because I want to go back to Chevron. Chevron, step one, forget Mead, uh, I mean, that's out there as well, but Chevron step one is, is the language clear? And if it is, that will prevail. And that decision is made by judges. Mm -hmm. That decision is made not by the agency. And if the agency, if the FTC now decides that it has authority to do the non-compete clauses, that will be subject to court review. And that will be subject probably to court review of both the court of appeals level and I suspect at the Supreme Court level. So I'm not so worried about that particular one um, breaking the glass. Yeah. I promise I'll let you get to non-delegation next, but let me ask Noah a question first. Is that okay? Or were you going to say one more, one more uh, beat on Chevron? No, I was going to respond to, and I don't know, I wrote down here, need to respond. Oh, <laughs> you, were, you were saying the Constitution makes it hard to legislate. Yes, it does. And you can hear George Washington with the, cup, the uh, saucer of the cup and the cooling phase and all those wonderful things we teach our law students. Yes, it makes it very hard. At a time when life moved a little slower than it does now. <laughs> when the world was harder to navigate. And if you wanted to take several years to solve some problems, go right ahead. That's not what we're living today. And I think Congress cannot deal with the AK-15s or whatever the hell they are in the schools. And I only wish that we had an agency that could deal with that easily, quickly, and definitively. And I'm a member of the NRA. I do, I have my badges. I went to camp. I learned how to use the rifles. I'm, I, I, I'm, I swear to you. But that's a weapon of war. What's it doing? Never mind. I'm just grateful you checked your, uh, your, your piece at the, at the door, <laughs> Sally. Uh, let me ask Noah a question quick, and then we'll give everybody a chance to jump in. Uh, and Noah, my question for you is different. Um, sort of a, a basic principle of administrative law is that the judges mostly judge the actions on their own terms, the rules, the explanations the agencies give. Um, but 
Now more than ever, people at agencies, they say a lot along the way. They make statements, they, they give speeches, they tweet. Presidents say a lot, speeches, tweets. We now live in a time where it's impossible not to see the motivations of the agency, of the administration, beyond what they put in the final decision. And the Supreme Court's grappled with this, you know, in a, in a very specific way in the, the census case, the, the, where the Trump administration wanted to add the citizenship question. They dealt with it in the, uh, in, in the, the, the Hawaii, uh, Trump versus Hawaii, the, the travel ban case. They're probably, they may be grappling with it now in the student loan case, where the administration's policy, its justifications for its policy now seem a little narrower than what it was saying more broadly about student loans. And even more than that, I'm surely judges get a sense of administration as a whole, not an administration, but just administration. Today agencies, at least to me, seem like maybe they're chomping at a bit more to, to do more faster. Um, how, as a former commissioner, how should that, how would you like that to weigh in a judge's decision? To what extent should judges be cognizant of the, the statements, announcements, moods of an administration? And to what extent should judicial review just focus on the final written document? So this is not a question that I've studied. Right. So I want to be clear that the answer I'm giving is sort of impressionistic. And, and for all the things we've, we've discussed over the years, this is not one of them. I'm, this I'm is not honestly putting you on the spot. Thanks again for coming. My gut, <laughs> my gut is the focus should be on what the agencies actually are doing. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if it's a rule, Right? That's the thing that the parties in question are going to be subject to. And that's the best barometer right, of what the meaning of the agency, uh, of what the agency is doing it, right? And certainly over time, it's going to tend toward whatever the words are. You know, on some level, these principles bear a similarity to like contract law, mm -hmm. right? And you look at the terms of the contract and when there is ambiguity, you might look at parallel evidence, right? What did people say to one another when they were negotiating the contract? We see analogs in statutory interpretation. I think we see analogs in administrative law. It's sort of the basic principle of how we think about things. We live in an age where members of the media where employees at companies, where politicians, and yes, administrators just tee off on things a lot. Mm -hmm. That's just where we are. Um, it's going to be hard, I think, as a practical matter for courts to ignore if people adduce evidence about what folks were saying about what they were doing. But it may also be, whether it's in the rule promulgation process or the legislative process, they don't get exactly what they want. It may be that they're saying those things so that they can later come back and define the rule that way, even though they couldn't build the consensus even within a commission of a few people to get that text into the rule or into the policy statement or what have you. Because it is so easy just to say something loudly. And in our modern day and age, it is so easy to trumpet whatever we say to everyone. Um, to my mind, while that perhaps creates all of this kind of parallel evidence in the context of rulemaking, I think it makes it even more important to focus on what 
what the agency actually does. Now, I do think there can be facts on the ground that may change how a court might think about something in a way that just tweets don't. So I'll give an example, and I alluded to it earlier. I do think it is fair if a court were later to look at an FTC unfair methods of competition rulemaking for the litigants to say there's an executive order on this. And the President of the United States has signed that into law for the executive branch and it says they can make all these rules. And you court, you don't just have to look at this one, you have to look at all of them because that's an official document. Um, now, it's an independent agency, the order doesn't bind them, but it's certainly different from a tweet. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's the right result, which there are different kinds of evidence that tell us a little bit more. Um, again, though, I think fundamentally, what you have to look at is what the agency does. Thanks, Noah. Now, I'm sure Ron has a few things he wants to say in response to what's been said. But could I ask, an, can, can we get an audience question first? Audience right. question. So there are microphones. Are the microphones right? We have microphones. If you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand and, um, and I'll call on you. Just wait a moment for the microphone to make it your way. Anybody so far? Well, let's start with Michael since he wrote for the symposium, and then the, next, the second question will be right there. Michael, the, the microphone's making its way. Uh, I'd like to ask Ron your response to Sally's point about administrative law judges. Isn't that a really good point about the rule of law? and in a way in which our current constitutional doctrine of removal seems to be at odds with the rule of law. I mean, when, when administrative law judges can be cashiered uh, easily by the political branches, you're sure not gonna get uh, independent ju uh, judgments from them. Well, I think first of all, that what you want to have the ALJ's doing depends on how, or, or I should say, how, how you see them being appointed and removed. Depends on what it is you see them doing. Um, at, at the International Trade Commission, the ALJ's primarily uh, render initial decisions on disputes over the meaning of particular patent provisions. Technical you need to have a background in patent and patent law and patent technology to, to know what it is. The commissioners, by and large, don't have any of that. And so the commissioners of the ITC really need to have people who know what they're doing uh, dealing with these things. If mostly what the uh, ALJs are doing is that sort of technical stuff, you don't worry so much about people uh, trying to influence them because we have no idea what's going on. If the ALJs are actually making decisions on things that have to do with the, the operation of the uh, Federal Trade Commission law or the, the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act or any of the things that seem like what judges might be doing, that's probably not something we want to go to ALJs. The sort of people who need protection against uh, being appointed and removed 
for political be we don't want ALJs doing that. We don't want people inside the government doing that. We want people inside the government making decisions on things like are you really injured? Do you really get your social security uh, disability? Is that have you earned? If it's something that is bigger picture and that needs insulation against the political branches, it doesn't belong inside the government. And so I, I think that a lot of us, the, our first take on what's right about the way ALJs are insulated now is influenced by seeing a lot of them doing things that aren't appropriate to be done by administrators inside an agency. So uh, at the end of the day, I'm actually on uh, Professor Scalia's side with respect to ALJs. Let me ask real quick. No, I hear the FTC has some ALJs, right? Uh, no, we have one. You have one ALJ. I, say we, I still say we. The what, FTC has one. What's the, right, what's the right relationship between the ALJ, the right constitutional relationship between the ALJ, the, the commission as a whole, and the president? It's funny, Ron, you mentioned like the Social Security Administration ALJs. <laughs> That's scut work. That's a lot of different things. It's going to be very hard to administer, I think, a process where we sort of treat them like, like Article Three judges. That's my, my view on that. Um, the principal worry that I always had at the FTC where some of the actions that the agency brings come up through the ALJ process. We have one ALJ. Sorry? Oh, they do large uh, antitrust matters. And then it comes up on de novo review to the commission. One of the awkwardnesses that that creates, that I never sort of found comfort with personally, is that it puts the commissioners in the position of reevaluating evidence that they only hear through oral argument and the decision. They don't get to see the witness cross-examined. And they have the power to say, no, 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 they were credible or they weren't. And at the risk of <laughs> heading in the other direction and giving ALJs more power, um, unless we're going to have, and this is legally plausible, it just never happens, the commission or a commissioner preside and actually hear the testimony and make those kind of judgments that judges closer to the litigation or the underlying litigation can, really only they can, I do think we're in a position of allowing people a freedom to and thus creating a temptation to really just write what they want. I'm not saying that happens all the time. In my experience, the commissioners take very seriously their duties, um, as they should, but to the Star Chamber earlier, <laughs> while the ALJ has reversed the FTC, it's very hard to find an instance of the FTC filing a case and then disagreeing with itself. Yeah. And it raises the question, like, what is this, what should this process be? What is it supposed to be? Um, and and what, what is it in fact? Sally, last thought on ALJs? I'm not sure I, um, I'm not sure I understood what Ron was saying. Do you think that the approximately 10,000 
ALJs of the Social Security Administration who hear disability complaints, that those should be Article III judges? No. No, but I, I think that, that in fact what they're doing is very much like what adjudication by somebody who's a, a, a subsidiary of an agency looks like. You know, the, the agency has Yeah, no, I get rules. that, but so they have a rule saying you can't take any other, you can't do certain kinds of work, and then the, AL, the AJ, in, in that case, they're not ALJs, they're AJs, at the Social Security Administration, in effect, looks at the medical records of the claimant and says, you are incapacitated or you are not, one or the other. And who should do that? You say it shouldn't be inside the government? No, I think that, I'm saying that is fine inside the government. I, I think what happens at the FTC isn't. I think what happens at, at the NORB in part isn't. And, and, and of course what you have, Social Security is almost all the ALJs in the government. Uh, there are the AJs who, who do uh, a lot of work in commerce, the, the patent judges do a lot of work in commerce. You know, a, a lot of that is very technical. It's very technical, yeah. That doesn't okay. have to be in Article Three judges. Let's go to other questions. Well, real quick, Ron, I think you had a response to something earlier from, from Sally, right? Yeah, I, I, I did want to say, uh, with respect to um, the, the question of whether uh, things should be, laws should be written by agencies because they can do it faster. Um, or whether we should just interpret the uh, authority given to agencies to cover anything new that comes along. Congress can act fast when it needs to, but we also can have rules of the road that apply to different technologies. You don't need you know, the, the uh, article that uh, Frank Easterbrook wrote about the law of the horse, which comes out of earlier conversation with other professors. You, you don't need separate laws with respect to each new technology, but that's not a reason to have the laws not be written by the lawmaking authority. I would just, very quickly, I would look at the OSHA laws that the Supreme Court said didn't anticipate the coronavirus, and I would say it came as close, it came as close to predicting that they would have jurisdiction and how six people in the Supreme Court knew more about that then uh, OSHA is, is semi-mind-boggling. I'm not saying that the agencies should write laws writ large on any subject matter at any time. No way. They can only do what Congress has delegated them to do within an intelligible principle. And I honestly believe that those limitations are real. Last question uh, in the middle of the room. I wonder if uh, Professor Katzen could elaborate more on her, I think, very striking claim that Congress has entered a unique era where it is uniquely unable or illegitimate to legislate now, as I understood you say, Professor Katzen, because uh, in 1850, we had the caning of Charles Sumner on the Senate floor. In 1907, the Senate tried to expulse a senator simply for being Mormon. Jack Abramoff's scandal was only 20 years ago. And yet at no point throughout American history has the nation decided this is too ridiculous. This, this is not a circus that the fathers of the Constitution 
constitution or any point in our country intended. So what evidence do you have or what metrics are you looking at to say this circus down the street right now is so different and so unique that this is not what was intended nor what the American people want? And conversely, what metrics will you know to say, now Congress is back to what best serves the American people. This is how I'll know now we can take the power away from the administrative agencies and give it back to Congress because now they're behaving properly or as intended. So Sal, you're gonna get the last word with, with this answer, but let me add to the question. Uh, presidents love to say, Congress won't act, therefore I will. It seems to me that it's just as true that Congress won't act because presidents will. Well, that's right. And I, well, I wonder how much of Congress's lethargy reflects the fact that we live in an era of, of, of very active presidents. Well, I think that's a, a judgment call, Adam. And um, my sense is, and, and I have, I, I, I'm this young man, and I do not mean to be demeaning in any way, but you know, I'm 80 years old, and I've seen, and I've lived in Washington since 1963. So I, I know a lot, and I've seen a lot of, of the Congresses going through, and I think your question is really very good. But remember that I was not starting from the proposition that Congress is broken, and therefore, we have to let the agencies run wild. I was starting from the proposition that I don't think the Constitution restricts agencies from the, being the recipients of delegated authority. Some of that authority was delegated in the 30s and 40s. Much of it was delegated in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as new departments and agencies were set up and new authority was given to different agencies. And in those instances, I think there is a substantial role to be played by letting the agencies make the laws that Congress wanted them to make. There is oversight and there is budget. And while they can't enact a lot of legislation, although they managed to do so with the pandemic and then with the infrastructure bills, that as a general rule, I see more tension, more unhappiness, more confrontation, more gridlock now than in any other time since I've been in Washington. I've seen, I've seen senators giving up their seats, still in their youth, still with years to follow. Some stay on past their youth, but uh, I, I've seen a, a lot of people say, this is crazy, I don't do anything. It's just also strange. I don't have a metrics. I have personal observation, but again, I'm not using the inability of Congress as the key to unleash, well that's a mixed metaphor, um, the agencies. I, I'm saying they were delegated power, let them do it. 
Well, thanks, Sally. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, budget and oversight because that'll be the next panel. Before we wrap this one up, let me just put in one last plug for something we're doing at the Gray Center. I mentioned this, is, this conversation comes out of a symposium we just had up at NYU. Uh, the Harvard G Journal of Long Public Policy is gonna publish soon another symposium we hosted. We invited five, uh, five state Supreme Court justices to write about administrative law trends in their own states. So they, they wrote about their states and Judge uh, Jeffrey Sutton wrote a sort of a capstone essay bringing it all together. That'll come out soon. Uh, after that, we're gonna have a, a symposium coming out in the Pace Environmental Law Journal uh, with our friend Don Elliott, who's here. It's, a, it's centered around some of his recent scholarship on the future of environmental regulation. Look for that in the months ahead as well. It's something we're gonna do more and more uh, at the Gray Center. Our, our view of it is that a symposium is never gonna be the final word on a subject, but it, it's often the first word on a subject. And we hope that they spark new conversations. We hope that this, uh, this symposium sparks some new conversations, and I hope you'll join me in thanking our speakers. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.